beautiful posture of prayer, find Acts chapter 9 in the Bible, fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. We are working our way through this uh, book by Luke, and we are now in Acts chapter 9 as we are looking at the story of the church, as the church was born, and then as the church spent its first couple of decades in existence. So we are this morning in Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to read two stories from verse 32 to the end of the chapter that we're going to be reflecting on. Meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place, and he came down to, a, came down to visit the believers in the town of Lydia. There he met a man named Ananias, who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your sleeping mat. And he was healed instantly. Then the whole population of Lydia and Sharon saw Ananias walking around and they turned to the Lord. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha which in Greek is Dorcas, which I think we probably want to go with her Hebrew name, Tabitha, because you don't want to name a kid at least any more Dorcas. Uh, but that's her Greek name, but we'll call her Tabitha. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydia, and so they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned to them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas, or Tabitha, had made for them. But Peter asked them all to leave the room. And then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Get up, Tabitha. She opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented her to them alive. The news spread throughout the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa living with Simon, the tanner of hides. Now, when interpreting a passage like this one this morning, we always have to look at the context of the passage in light of the whole book. And we also have to look at the context in the historical situation in which this happened, as well as the time that the writer of Acts wrote this story. This is even more important with these stories because they are in a historical book like the book of Acts. And so they have a setting in place and time. The reason why it's important to do this because it's tempting to read these stories in isolation from everything else and to interpret them as nothing more than short little morality tales. They seem completely obvious. And we wonder, why do we need to look into any other kind of context? Can't we just read them and get the obvious meaning from them? I mean, you read the story, and in story one, Peter heals a paralyzed guy. Story two, 
Peter goes and heals a dead woman, brings her back to life. Moral of the story, God is awesome, and Peter's pretty cool too. I mean, we could just come up with something like that. Now, the stories do raise questions for us in our culture today. They may raise questions like, are these stories things that really happened? Are these actual historical events, or are they just legends? We may ask questions like, why don't we see things like this happening in our church today? I mean, I've been to plenty of Bethany funerals, and I can tell you that I have never seen someone get up from the dead and rise in one of those funerals. In fact, if I did, I'd probably run screaming. It's never happened. Neither have I ever been in a setting at Bethany or anywhere else where someone has been in a wheelchair and suddenly and instantly they have been healed. And so these are good questions to ask. But there's a time and place for those questions and the time and place, unfortunately, is not today. Because the passage of scripture that we're looking at today is not asking those questions. It's not addressing those questions. And so we want to talk about today, what is Luke, who wrote and recorded these stories, trying to address? What are the questions that he is dealing with? If we're going to learn from the Bible and not read our own ideas into the Bible... But hear from Scripture and come under the submission of what the Scripture says, we need to figure out why these stories were written, not impose our own idea on them. For every act in the book of Acts has been selected by Luke for a purpose. He's not just giving us random facts about early church history. There were many things that happened, many things that aren't recorded. And so we have to ask ourselves, why did Luke choose to record the events that he recorded? Why did he put them in the order that he put them in? What is he trying to say? If we don't ask those questions, we run the danger of taking texts like this and manipulating them. Manipulating them either into giving people false promises of miracles from God or manipulating the text to give people guilt trips about their lack of faith. That's why these things aren't happening in their life. Texts like this can be manipulated and are manipulated all the time. So the context of these stories in Acts is that Luke is writing real history probably close to around 40 A.D., in real physical space and time. And Luke writes this history not simply as a record of what happened, but with an agenda. His agenda is to convince the reader of his book that Jesus is Lord. That's his agenda. Not just, here's history, here's what happened almost 2,000 years ago, but this is an apologetic. I am putting this together to convince you through the facts of things that really did happen that Jesus is Lord 
And that because he is Lord, everything has changed. Because Jesus is Lord, we have to understand the world differently. And therefore, he selects different events to push that theme. Every sermon, every story, every miracle, every martyrdom, every arrest, everything that is in the book of Acts is pushing that agenda. That Jesus is Lord, and I need to tell you what that means. Because if you understand that to be true, everything is different. That's why he selected these two miracle stories. For this message that Jesus is Lord is the message in which the church was born out of. It's the message that the church stands strong on. It's the message in which the church continues to reproduce and continues on generation after generation. It's the message that the church continues to proclaim today. And that's why even for us, when we approach the book of Acts, although we acknowledge that it is history, we also acknowledge that the book of Acts is a proclamation. We come together as Christians on Sunday morning not just simply to go over the facts of history, but to proclaim something that comes out of these facts of history. See, biblical miracles, whether they're Old Testament miracles, whether they're New Testament miracles like in the life of Christ or in the life of the early apostles like in the book of Acts are never recorded simply to give us random acts of kindness. The gospel writers or Luke when he's writing Acts is not writing down things to show us that Jesus was just a really nice guy. And so I'm going to write down a bunch of miracles that he did because I need to convince everybody that Jesus was nice. He helped people. That's also not the reason why Luke recorded the miracles that he did in the book of Acts to try to tell us that Peter was just really nice or really awesome or could do really cool things. Instead, all of the miracles throughout Scripture are presented to tell us something beyond the actual miracle. That's why I usually prefer to refer to miracles as signs. Yes, they are miracles. I do believe these miracles actually happened, but they are signs. Meaning that the miracles are not ends in themselves. The miracles are all a sign pointing to something else. Pointing to something that is actually bigger than the miracle itself. So what is a sign? Let's think about this. Let's think of a a sign for a bakery. Now, sometimes bakeries will try to come up with imaginative ways to make signs. Like this here, it's an older sign of a bakery that obviously makes bread. And so they made their sign to look like a loaf of bread. They want to make their signs look delicious. And the reason is because they are hoping that by looking at the sign, you will say, I need to go into that bakery 
and purchase one of those loaves of bread and try it. The sign is promising something that's delicious, and so I want to go and try that delicious thing. Now, if someone were to go up to the sign and try to take a bite out of the sign, they would be greatly disappointed. Not only would the sign not be delicious, but they would probably have a very expensive dental bill that they would have to pay. Augustine makes the same point in his book, City of God. In City of God, he's talking about how, as people, we tend to worship the creation rather than the creator. And Augustine's point is that the creation is, in many ways, a sign. It's to point us to the creator. But when we look at the creation as an end in itself, as we, when we make the sign the reality, he gives an illustration of that's like somebody going up to a great painting of a banquet and licking the painting rather than going to an actual banquet and eating the food of a banquet. Every time I think of that image, I just find it hilarious. I uh, can tell you that this is a not a satisfying experience from personal experience. How many of you grew up on scratch and sniff stickers? So I've never licked a painting before, but uh, I used to have these scratch and stiff sniff stickers when I grew up. And uh, what these things do is they're stickers that you scratch, and after you scratch them, they, they give off a scent, uh, something like dill pickle, or strawberry shortcake that you can then go and you can smell. Now, I have to admit that there were times that these scratch and sniff stickers smelled so good that I decided to lick the sticker and discovered that it did not taste like it smelled. It tasted like glue and like paper and like my dirty fingernails. Wasn't a pleasant experience. Signs don't point to themselves. Signs point to something beyond them. If you see a crosswalk sign with kids in it, you're supposed to look out for real kids, not stare at the sign. Freud and Jung believe that the things we dream about can be signs. So I have this frequent dream that I've had for, for many, many years, and that is this dream that my teeth fall out. And it's gone on many times. And I actually have no fear of my teeth actually falling out. And so I went to psychologist Dr. Google and typed this in, and I said, what does this mean? Why do I keep having this dream? And according to Dr. Google, uh, this is a sign of, quoting, insecurity or vulnerability regarding a recent event that disrupted your life. So now I've got to figure out what that event is. And the fact that I've had this recurring dream for years, I must have many recent events in my life that is making me quite insecure. Uh, so there are people that believe that, that what we see in dreams are signs. They're not the reality in themselves, but they point to something else. As a referee, I make signs all the time. If a ball goes out of play and I point in one direction, you as a player are not supposed to come and grab my arm. Your job is to grab the ball and throw it in 
in the direction that I am pointing. We make signs. Miracles in the Bible are always, and I want to emphasize that. This is not once in a while and we got to figure out when. Miracles in the Bible are always signs that go beyond themselves. They're told not for the sake of the miracle itself. They are told to point us beyond the miracle. Many unhealthy movements in the church spring up when the church forgets this. And we start proclaiming miracles rather than proclaiming the miracle worker. We proclaim signs and wonders rather than the one to whom they are pointing. That would be like preaching John the Baptist rather than preaching Jesus Christ, which is our mandate. Luke's doing the same thing. Luke is giving us signs and saying, don't just look at the signs. My signs are here to point you somewhere. So in this instant, this morning, Luke gives us two more road signs. Not simply to wow us, but to tell us about the main idea. The main idea that Jesus is Lord and what this means. See, the power of these miracles did not come from Peter, but they came from Jesus. Peter even says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Also, the healing of Ananias is not just the sign of one guy being healed by Jesus, but it's about what the healing of Ananias represents. And that is that the message of Jesus as Lord is that he is Lord over disease. And he is Lord over disability. And Aeneas becomes a sign of that. That what is happening here in this one-time instance is a sign of God's accomplishment in Christ and what God promises to do with all of his creation in the end. And Aeneas' disease and disability is no match for Jesus. He is Lord over those things. And then in the same way, the second story is not about Peter's magical abilities, but about the lordship of Jesus. And also the lordship of Jesus, not just for one person's life, Tabitha, but that Jesus is lord over death. That death has been defeated by Jesus through his cross and resurrection. And the healing of Tabitha is the proclamation in a very physical way to proclaim that message. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, is what we say in our creed as Christians. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead and therefore conquered death. Another reason we know these two events to be signs pointing to something greater and not as ends in themselves is because these events, if they were ends in themselves, actually offer very little hope. 
Because as ends in themselves, the signs actually aren't that wonderful. Yes, Tabitha got up, and that's amazing. But guess what? In a few more years, Tabitha was going to die again. The resuscitation, the bringing back to life of Tabitha, we know is a sign because it is actually not even the reality of the kind of resurrection promised to us in Jesus' resurrection. So it was merely a sign. Ananias was healed instantly. He got up, but guess what? Ananias is going to get sick again. And Ananias is also going to still face death. Both of these miracles only provided temporary relief. And a few more years or decades on their life. And guess what? Having a few more decades added onto your life is not always a blessing. Sometimes it's a curse. Just read the story in the Old Testament of Hezekiah. God granted him some more years and he really messed things up in his added years. Many times I've said the same thing about Martin Luther. Why didn't God take Martin Luther 10 years earlier? He did many wonderful things for God. And then in his last 10 years, he became very bitter, very angry. That's where some of his anti-Semitic um, remarks came out in his last years. Maybe he was going a little bit senile or something. And you just wonder, why, why do we have to have that black mark? Why didn't God just take him 10 years earlier? So being blessed with an extra 10 years, 20 years, is not always a blessing. And all that happens in these situations, yes, a miracle happens in the time. These people get a few more years of life, but they're going to die again. Therefore, we even know from that that these are merely signs. Because if, if what happens here is all Jesus offers us, I can heal you and give you 10 more years. It's not really good news. It's only good news because Luke is saying these are signs. These are signs that point to something bigger. The only reason that these miracles are great is because they tell a message that's better. That Jesus is not Lord over temporal disease, disability, and death. Although he can overcome those and give us a few more years. But it's not about that. It's that he is Lord over eternal death. And disease. And disability. That he's actually won the war. Not just a temporary battle. He's Lord over, over eternal death, disease, and disability. And he's not Lord over it in some ghostly way. He's Lord over it in real physicality. Signs of paralyzed people walking and dead bodies waking up and getting out of bed are not signs of ghostly existence in the hereafter. They are foreshadowed of signs pointing to the actual miracle of real physical resurrection and real physical and complete healing in the age to come. That's the hope of the gospel. They are like the sample of lint chocolate that you get when you enter the lint store. It's tasty. And sometimes I'm tempted to go in and pretend I'm going to buy something just so I can get the little sample. It's tasty, but it's not what they're really offering. It's only meant as a hint of so much more. 
And that is all the good stuff in the store. And that's what these miracles are like too. They're like that sample of chocolate. Just a hint of so much more to come that is better. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the deliverance of all disease and disability in Jesus Christ. We believe that this will be brought into full reality when Christ comes back again and heaven and earth join as one. We believe this because Jesus rose from the dead in a full resurrected body. He was the first one fully back from the dead. That's why the scriptures say he is the first fruits of the resurrection. That's why when people have come to me after and they say, how can they say that Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead? I mean, Lazarus rose from the dead before Jesus. We even have some Old Testament people that rose from the dead. But what we don't understand is all of those quote-unquote resurrections, maybe better to call them resuscitations, were merely signs. They weren't the real thing. They were people like Lazarus, like Tabitha, brought back to a temporary life. Jesus is the first one and the only one at this point to have fully rose from the dead in the full meaning of that that's why he's defeated death and because he's defeated death he is able to and he promises to when he comes back again to raise all of us who are with him from the dead as well to follow Jesus in not just a temporary resuscitation but in full embodied resurrection Now, if you ask me how God is going to scientifically do this, I have no way of explaining that. Including the fact that the current body that I'm in right now is even different from the body I had 10 years ago. And every seven years or so, I keep getting a new body, in a sense, because it keeps changing over all the cells in that. But somehow, at Christ's second coming, God is going to raise my actual DNA Me, from the dead, to be a fully embodied person without disease, disability, or death for all of eternity. You may think this is ridiculous. Just as I think it is ridiculous to believe that we became living, self-conscious, reflective, creative beings out of non-living, unconscious matter that no one even knows why there is something rather than nothing and it all happened by complete chance. I find that almost more ridiculous to believe. But whether you believe in resurrection or not, This is what Luke believes. And this is what Luke is proclaiming. This is what Luke is saying really happened. And because this really happened in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, now we are seeing in the early church the proclamation of this message. And the church is proclaiming it verbally. The church is proclaiming it by miraculous signs. The church is proclaiming it by good deeds and looking after widows and orphans. The church is proclaiming it at many different levels. But that's its message. That Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, 
under the reign of Pontius Pilate, died on a cross, and then rose from the dead, unlike anybody ever rose from the dead before, he rose from the dead to eternal life, and is Lord now over death, disease, and disability. That's the reality in which the church lives. That's the reality in which the church thrives. That's what we continually proclaim. And that is the reality that the church hopes for in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary, really. It's why we build hospitals. It's why we are usually the first on the field, even in countries hostile to the gospel, to provide relief to people affected by hurricanes and floods and earthquakes. It's why we clean up. It's why we care for the environment. It's why we advocate for green spaces and protect endangered animals. It's why we do research for cures for cancer and dementia and AIDS and the coronavirus. It's why we build schools and educate and care about good roads and safe communities and the arts and beauty and places for kids to play and truth and justice. We know that these things are not going to reach their ultimate fulfillment now. We don't have a naive belief about creating a utopia on our own merit. But that doesn't mean we do nothing. Instead, we are engaged in all of these types of things. Why? Because they are signs. They are all signs that point to the Lordship of Christ. They are all signs that point to the Lordship of Christ and His fulfillment of making all things right. A kingdom that upholds the dignity of life and the resurrection of creation. This is what Paul writes about in Romans in chapter 8 when he says, What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all of creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in the glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste, that sample of the future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Note the language here. People misinterpret this and read it as we wait for the release from our bodies. And that's not what he says. He says we wait for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. I do want that. I do want my body to be released from sin and suffering. And we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies, the ones without sin and death in them, including the new bodies he has promised us. All of creation is waiting for this. 
And Luke is telling us the signs, like the healing of Ananias and Tabitha, that these are signs of what we can wait for, what we can anticipate, what the new creation is going to be like in its fullness. For centuries, the phoenix has been a sign the church has used to tell the story of the lordship and resurrection of Jesus. You can see in Christian paintings, in stained glass windows, in the writings of the church fathers, the image of the phoenix. The idea that the phoenix dies and rises again has found its way into much mythology. We even know this from Harry Potter. As the phoenix in Harry Potter dies and becomes ash and then rises from the ashes. Clement, one of the earliest church fathers who wrote around the same time as the writings of our New Testament, is the earliest Christian to use this image of the phoenix as a way of teaching, as a sign. He wrote a letter to the church at Corinth about 30 years after Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth. And in that letter, which you can read online under the title First Clement, uh, Clement appears to believe that what he is writing is scientifically true, although he does not say that the actual phoenix comes back to life, but that something else comes to life out of it. But none of it really matters whether he really believed this or not. Uh, none of that really matters for the, the point that he's trying to make in using the phoenix as a sign. Clement writes in 1 Clement, there is a bird which is named the phoenix that when it has reached the time of its death makes for itself a coffin of frankincense and myrrh and other spices into which it lays down to die. But as the flesh rots, a certain worm grows from the moisture of the dead creature and puts forth wings and flies again. He uses that sign, he uses that imagery as a tool to point people to the ultimate one who really did rise from the dead. C.S. Lewis also saw in many of the myths signs that point to Jesus, just as Lewis created his own myth about the lion Aslan as a sign to do the same thing. The stories of paralyzed Ananias walking and dead Tabitha rising are not myths in the fact that they really did happen in history. But they are stories like myths that are about so much more than just one guy or one girl and what happened to them. They are grander stories than that. They're a story that points to the big story, what C.S. Lewis referred to as the true myth. And what he meant by that is the myth that actually became true in history. The myth that all other myths only were signs to. The story that we who follow Jesus participate in it becomes our story, and a story that we will one day see come to real fulfillment when heaven and earth reunite, when sin and death and disease and disability no longer divide us, 
because Jesus' resurrection proves that Jesus is the Lord of everything. So that when the words, get up, Ananias, get up, Tabitha, get up, Jesus says to the rest of us, means so much more than temporary healing. We all wait and anticipate from these signs for the day we will hear, get up! And it will be meant, as it is explained in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that when Jesus Christ comes again, the Lord will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the believers who have died will get up from their graves and then reign with the Lord forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the way that you told your story through Scripture, through creation. Lord, even through some of the other stories and myths that have been told through other groups and tribes and cultures. And Lord, we recognize that these are not what we are to put our hope in. But instead we are to see them as signs to you. That what happened with you changed everything. The fact that you conquered death changed everything. And now we live, Jesus, as your kingdom people, proclaiming the message of your lordship, proclaiming the message of your resurrected new life in all aspects of culture, creation, society, and life. We live that. We speak that. We pray that. And we hope for the day when it will become finalized. Amen.